0: Each generation, through its trials and its triumphs, valleys, and plateaus, provides a trove of lessons for the generations that follow them. We advance by building on the work of those who have gone before us, and many of them are still among us
1: to put us on game. Gen Activist is an intergenerational podcast presented by Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color.
2: Imagine it as a historical digital archive, remastered for contemporary use and permanent preservation. These are our stories, told for us, by us. You're listening to Gen Activists. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the pod, everyone. We're so excited that you're listening in. Today we have a great guest. We have Donna Carter, who is a renowned architect, but not just that. She's a black woman architect, which is very, very rare in the United States. And she's just done such amazing work. We have such a rich conversation with her about the power of community and design and architecture. And I just loved it. It literally felt like sitting on a Sunday afternoon talking to my aunt. And so I hope that you enjoy it. You know, sometimes when an episode is over, the conversation just keeps going. It's too good. And sometimes we will push record because we think there's some richness there that maybe we should capture. And that's what happened here. So you're going to first listen into kind of that after conversation that we had with Ms. Carter, G Mom, and Virginia. And we were just talking about something unrelated to architecture. We were talking about education and the ways that we think today's issues um, intersect with our education system. So listen here to that first. And then right after that, you will hear our official official conversation with Miss Carter. Check it out.
3: Gen activist, yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome,
2: welcome, welcome back to the pod, everyone. We're super honored that you're listening to another episode of the Gen Activist Podcast. We are super excited today. We have author and the founder of Latino Rebels, Prisca Dorquez Mojica Rodriguez, and she's just amazing. She's so candid, she's so honest, she's so raw, and she's just letting us in um, on the things that she's gone through and the ways that she has chosen to fight the system, um, to, to be a disruptor. And so we have a great conversation with her for you today. It is up next. Check it out.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Gen Activists. Uh, We are just, as always, so excited to invite y'all into our virtual living room for us to explore conversations and work that incredible, inspiring women of color are doing, this work of what we call creative activism. And so today, we are so excited to invite into our living room uh, Prisca, who is an incredible author, um, activist, Um, Social um, activism is what we believe her work is. It's the way of using storytelling to elevate the work and voices of Latino women. And so thank you so much for joining us. And we would love for you to kind of just start off by telling us a little bit about who you were as a young girl, the ways in which your childhood perhaps nurtured or informed the stories you're telling, why the Latino rebels was something to build, um, so, yeah, where are you from? And tell us a little bit about Young Friska.
3: Yeah, um, okay. So I was born in Nicaragua, in the capital of my country it is called Managua. And I was born in 1985, precisely when the U.S. put an embargo in the country. And so I don't actually have a lot of childhood pictures or much of anything from our childhood because of that. That kind of impacted the way that we document family histories so stories became really valuable especially during the war which my parents lived through and um, my dad's actually a musician uh he comes from like six generations of musicians and because he was really good he had he was known to make the organ speak he uh was brought to the U.S. he was like Uh, there was a church uh, called, uh, it was Gospel Outreach, was the organization, and they came to Nicaragua to provide help, you know, missionaries, as missionaries do, and my dad's talent really stood out to them, and so they were like, we would love for you to be a part of our church (laughs) and come to the U.S. and lead the music ministry there, and so my dad was brought to the U.S. We were all brought in 1992. We were on a religious visa, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and it's a it's a visa for people who are brought over by churches. Um, and so when we came here, we had the intention of staying, but the visa is temporary. Yeah, you're not meant to transition to a residency with that kind of visa. So we didn't go to school for about a year while everything was getting figured out. And once we became residents, I enrolled in school, but because I missed a year and I had gone to public school in our country, um, which is like public school in Latin America, I think it's pretty blanket statement. Our public schools aren't great. And so everyone who can will put their children into private schools and usually they're Catholic schools. So they're like religiously affiliated in one way or another. But um, because of the church that we were in and the missionaries had built a public school, you know, for the unfortunate, (laughs) I had gone to a public school. And so I I was done a huge disservice. And uh, when I got to to my classroom, I was eight years old. I was supposed to be in a second grade class. Well, technically third grade, but I missed that whole year. So I entered the second grade class and they found out I didn't know how to even find my name because I didn't know how to read. I didn't know what letters look like, what things they were supposed to sound like. And so I was sent back to the first grade class. I was eight years old. And I think that kind of stuff sticks with with you when you're a little bit taller <laughs> than your peers yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when they're singing the abc and not only that but it's the language barrier too so they're singing right. the abc's um, i don't have a reference for the yeah. abc's yeah. <laughs> or mm-hmm. like uh cultural foods like people bring peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and i'd be like i don't know <laughs> what What is <that>? what is <laughs> food? <laughs> yeah <laughs> like what is this goo in between your bread <laughs> So uh, uh, I grew up in the church, really strict. That's how we um, came to the U.S. And my dad devoted his entire life to being a pastor. And that meant, and and there was a kind of church where gender was very defined Mm. and very binary. There was only two genders in that kind of church. And girls are trained to become good moms
1: and good wives. And that's it. And well, that, shout out to PKs because Megan and I are both, both PKs and G mom was married to a pastor, yeah. So Stop. you're in very it's familiar gay. space right yep. now.
3: <laughs> 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 it is dramatic. I think that that's why Latino rebels is what it is. I got, cause uh, I like bought into a lot of the stuff because mm-hmm. in my church, um, hitting your kids was a biblical, right? Uh, like you were you as a parent you you were expected to correct your children if you love them you hit them to correct them that was often what I was told after I was hit as I did this because I love you and never in anger it's all out of love and that made me fearful and so I followed all the rules and I had like a secret life sometimes in school (laughs) like I had that I had a need to be my own person, and so because I kind of rebelled only in school in very limited ways, because there was no way in hell that they were going to hear about it, so very small rebellion. Like I wouldn't really study. They weren't going to call home if I wasn't getting Fs, but if I just got Cs, then I was going to get Cs. It was going to be fine, (laughs) and so I thought I was you know, outsmarting the system. Like I got to be a person in school and then I got home and I got to be whatever the version they needed me to be and the congregation needed us to be and look because that was kind of weaponized. Like I got caught sneaking up on my parents at 15 uh, after I had done it for years, by the way, but I pretended it was the first time I'd ever done it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and my dad cried and was like, I can't lead a church if I can't even reign you in so there was a lot of pressure and like you gotta get your shit together and so I did I learned to perform this person for church and then I learned to have fun (laughs) and um unfortunately when you finish school (laughs) and all you have is all these other spaces like the church spaces I when they when they told me you got to get married to leave this house I was like oh fine like I'm used to doing all the other things. This doesn't feel any stranger than (laughs) being told that my virginity is social currency. Like all that is weird. So I'll, I'll accept this other rule. And uh, I got married and that's when I started to become aware that like, Oh, this is, this isn't good anymore. Mm -hmm. This isn't a show anymore. This is going to be your life and you have to either change it, decide who you want to become or, just let go with the flow like my siblings have done and let their path become my path and be okay with it. (laughs) And I decided to not be okay with it. (laughs) (laughs) And it like burned everything down in a lot of really significant ways for me.
0: Mm.
2: So there's a lot, oh gosh, there's so much richness there. There's so much to um, relate to. And then in some ways, you know, so we all have like different experiences. Me and Virginia, both PKs, G mom, you know, married two years um, to a pastor. I think my parents very much were like on the conscious parenting tip before it was like called that, you know, there was like no name for it, um, but they were very like, we want to build critical thinkers. So we want to allow you to question and um and really kind of about like character building and then letting you go while you're still at home to see like how you can explore freedom while you still have the safety of like at home. So it was a little bit different in that way, but I so relate to like the pressure of, um, you know, perfection, right. And, and not like embarrassing your family and, you know, fitting into like this kind of cookie cutter thing and then being like a natural rule follower where it's like, yeah, I was always like so scared of like getting in trouble. And so I did the same thing, just like a little bit, like test the water a little bit, um, but not something that would be like, you know, extremely problematic or something that I feel like my parents would like freak out about, right? (laughs) So it was like, like all of that is like so relatable. So you said in the end, that you decided to go your own path, right? And like build a life that was true to yourself and that it kind of burned everything down um, in significant ways. So tell us this, what have you learned from the rubble?
3: A lot of hard lessons. I have learned uh, that feminism is easier said than done. I've met, I've met a lot of women, I think that smart women who were like, of course I'm a feminist. And the minute that you begin to be just a little too deviant. So for me, it was like I got divorced and decided I was going to have a sexual liberation because <laughs> there was no way in hell that I was going to jump back into a relationship after a divorce. And um, I wanted to figure out what I liked. I, that was so shamed and shunned. I mean, like the first time, this is going to be really lewd, so you could take it out if you want. But the first time I saw a penis, I sobbed. Like, that's the shame that I carried around sex and sexuality. And so when I got divorced, I was like, figure it out. This is your time to figure it out. And so I started being really slutty, intentional. It was a very intentional move. I said, I'm going to go out and have sex. And I'm going to have a built-in network for my safety, but I'm going to do this. And once it became known, because I didn't want to associate shame with sex, because that's all I had known. So once it became known, because I was conversational, like I was kind of processing what I had been doing the night before with my friends in a common space in the university. (laughs) So when that became known, to see people kind of break ties with me, um, a lot of Uh, married like peers of mine who were married men stopped talking to me because their wives didn't want the association people policing what I wore it it became really it's like it's cool to say you're a feminist and do all this thing when you're married but the minute you've become unattached to a man we are no longer interested in whatever you're doing now you're crazy now you've now you've like gone to the other side (laughs) so that was really heartbreaking um Also, you know, I had my own Me Too experience with somebody at my graduate program and to have everybody, including the university, turn their backs on me, which is Vanderbilt is considered a really progressive institution. And to have that happen too, it was so heartbreaking. I couldn't believe the fickleness of it all and how cruel people were going to be and how predictable like I was like we read about this we talk about this but when we have to do something about it and y'all aren't interested because Mm -hmm. it is dangerous to go against all of this but you can also make a decision to be an ally and protect people but nobody was and that Mm -hmm. hurt that hurt Mm -hmm. and I grieved that a lot because I thought because all the 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 big reason why I decided to become this person was because I was reading all this stuff in the classroom and we were having all these conversations and it was really heartbreaking to see people who were really great at talking about things, but not really good at the praxis of any of those things. Yeah. So that,
0: <laughs> I find that I find your story as much as interesting at many points of juncture in my life. One, I've reared children who were children of pastors and the expectations set for them, even though I think we were much more in tune with their social consciousness, but not always with the wounds that they experienced from the church. Uh, and not being more aware of how it was affecting our children it's one of the things I have to spend time reflecting on and thinking about Um, but when you describe yours it it just sort of like life pardon me for saying I think you've lived life at its fullest in some ways at the extremes at the extremes and it's like this extreme here, extreme here, and somehow they come together at some point and you bring from each of those something worthwhile that helps you say who you are. Um, And so maybe you could just talk about what that journey has been a little bit to get you to where you are and you feel comfortable, not because that's who you ultimately will always be, but comfortable in becoming. So maybe you can share that a little bit with us.
1: I love how you phrased that, G-Mom, to say who you are, because there's an agency in that. And I think that's yes. what you were describing earlier is in your maturation, your adolescence, you were not given autonomy or agency to tell say who you were, that expectations and your identity was given to you. And I I tie that so closely to just the universality, right, of walking in this world as women and walking in this world as women of color. And how so often we have to, um, or we're being asked to take on the identities and the expectations of the world. And I think through your work, through Latina Rebels, through the work we're trying to do through Rosa rebellion, it is really the resistance, the um, rejection right, of the singular identity, but in to say that we can disrupt these systems, we can disrupt these narratives. And so just adding on, I just love the way that you described that G mom, but yeah, what, how have you, how have there been a culminating experience to yeah. you to building uh, Latino rebel specifically?
3: I think for me- oh,
0: you are, yes. Yeah, right.
3: yes. I think for me, I decided that I was going to be a bridge burner Um, especially when you, because I went to seminary for my grad program. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of talk about building bridges (laughs) specifically for people of color to build bridges for the white people in programs like that. Like you have to to meet them at the middle (laughs) and also build the bridge
0: (laughs) and also like
3: maybe meet them like all the way because they won't meet you at the middle. And I just got sick of it when I started to see That nobody was meeting me at the middle. I was doing a lot of work and I was trying to fight for my life and to get autonomy back in a lot of ways. And so to have uh, people not even come to my bridge, (laughs) I was like, oh, I am being taught the wrong thing. So I am going to burn every bridge down. And I talk a lot about like with the, with the ashes, I'll make a face mask <laughs> and then I'm going to go to another table and we're going to build our own table. But um from the rubble of all of that, but it was because, uh because I saw the fickleness of everything. I was like, you, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be somebody who gets all this information and learns to like repeat it eloquently, but isn't doing anything about it. So I started to get one of the big thing was get visible tattoos. So if, I was like, if I'm going to say fuck respectability politics, I want, I want to risk everything. Employment, which I did once I got, once I finished my master's program, I started to go to a job interviews and people were not happy that I had visible tattoos and were surprised that I had as much education as I had with the tattoos they couldn't make sense of it so i couldn't mm-hmm. get a job anywhere <laughs> but i wanted i wanted life to to hit me because it was already hitting me regardless mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. so i wanted it to at least
3: show me who was to be trusted and who was not and a lot of people weren't and that was very good i i needed all those lessons because out of all those lessons came a lot of grief and came all of my writings which i had never Tried to write before, I had never been encouraged to write before, and suddenly it was like it was a pearl cleage like writing for my life, like that felt so visceral to me. I was like, Oh, you, you, this stuff is pouring out of you, mm-hmm. and you just write it down because
0: mm-hmm.
3: you're I was at the middle of the intersection of who do you want to just be really good at talking shit or do you want to burn it all to the ground? (laughs) And I, I was going to make that decision. And so I did, I just started to just, even the ways I show up at universities, I I cuss a lot. (laughs) I, on Twitter, if you follow my Twitter, I'm constantly, I even, I have reminders on my phone, like talk about masturbation. Like I need, I need to keep reminding myself, like disrupt, Make people question your respectability. Make people question why they should listen to you. Make mm-hmm. make all that be the filter by which people get access to you.
0: So I call that courage. I mean, you've drunk so deeply in life. Scary places where many of us are afraid to go. Oh, that's scary. I can't go there. Um, but I think there is a real courage. I just quickly want to, then I'll move on. Do you know the name James Lawson? Yes, Vanderbilt, yes. I love, <laughs> yeah, so he and my husband pastored churches just down the street from each other, and he was the chairperson of the southern christian leadership uh, conference s c l c um and so he's still such a light. He and Marion Wright Edelman, but Vanderbilt, that's where he was when he called Martin Luther King to he was a risk taker for sure and got kicked uh, out yeah that's right and so um but, but but there's so much to learn from stories like yours and his um and so and you storytelling allows us to go scary places that you've been sometimes without having to go and i don't know if that's cheating mm-hmm. i so like Man, I so relate to the
2: frustration when you talk about like people being fickle, like, you know, doing this work, I, I did kind of like racial justice work in a culturally white space, a church, um, and like, you know, still have so many people that I love there and great relationships with, but also watching people be outraged, you know, at certain things like, oh, I get it now, oh, I've, you know, woke up, I, I, what can I do, you know, and all of that. And then watching how fast Mm
0: -hmm. they
2: ran out of stamina Mm -hmm. for it while we're still living in these like oppressive systems. I'm sorry that you're tired of talking about race after like a year of giving a damn. Mm -hmm. And so it's very, very frustrating, right. To do that work to the point where like, you know, it was really bad for me. Like I would go to these meetings and we would plan these conversations and we plan to do all this work, but I'm also watching people not have the stamina to go to where like, I'm like crying after these meetings. I'm like super frustrated. I'm like, why does it even matter? Why am I giving so much of my time? And then left like really, really angry. And, um, you know, I was like, I'm going to be unapologetic about the fact that I'm pissed because I gave so much of my Mm-hmm. Time and really just my emotional energy to creating space, frankly, for white people to work through their racism. And then they like didn't even have the stamina to see it through. Right? <laughs> like that funny. pisses me
1: off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think even more so than stamina. It is an unwillingness, you know, we talk about this all the time to seed anything, to seed comfort. To see privilege, to see position, to see financial, you know, gain. So it's like the stamina is one piece, but I think the frustration of you know, Megan, you're talking about the emotional toll. Like it is physical, mental, spiritual for us, right? Yeah. To wade into these waters, um, in these spaces, spaces that we know were not built for us. Vanderbilt wasn't built for you, with you in mind, right? Yeah. Um, the schools we went to were not built for us, and. And so I, I, I so align, you know, Megan and I talk about righteous anger all the time, righteous indignation, which I feel like is biblical. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, in the last few years, I've given myself permission because you talk about respectability politics. There's something about growing up in a culture of um, in a faith culture, but also for me being a black girl who grew up in mostly white spaces and not wanting that, um, that definition of my identity to be what, uh, preceded me. Like, oh, she's just always angry. She's always raising her hand. And so me rejecting that and me performing in a way that would support other people's comfort. Mm-hmm. Right. But there is such power in our anger. And I think about that, um, in your work, right. This idea of disruption and agitation, um, and just talk to us a little bit about, you know, as Megan and I say, the the ability to sit in that posture of anger and allow that anger to fuel other people's resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, um,
3: it's a thing we talk about therapy a lot now. I, w- I I didn't grow up comfortable with the feeling of anger
2: because-
3: mm-hmm good kids are happy kids (laughs) good marriageable girls are happy girls
2: I was gonna say you also grew up as a girl
3: and I I internalized that and I even for years I would cry and laugh at the same time Mm because I didn't even know how to show sadness without being uncomfortable in my own body and so when I was, was like, fuck everything, and really went into that deep end of things, I got angry. <laughs> and I, I stayed angry for years, for years. And it was fuel for making Latina Rebels. It was fuel for writing. It was, I mean, a lot of what I've written in the book, I had written years before. And I I wrote in five minutes often the brown girl piece it took me like five minutes to write it back in november of 2015 i was in the middle seat of a plane and just sad and angry and i remember just sitting crying (laughs) typing furiously and like to yeah. people next to me being like, what is wrong with this uh, girl?
1: Lanes <laughs> are great places for writing. Yeah. There's something emotional yeah. and yeah. spiritual that happens when you're like in the clouds and you feel like you're a little closer to God and just like things grow <laughs> out of you. Yeah. <laughs> and I get like a
3: frenzy look too. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I would go to like these blackout, angry places and that's who wrote. And that's, that's the voice that had been muffled for all of my life. And I'm still making peace with that anger Absolutely. today because I'm trying, I feel like I've, um, I've gotten to this place where I've over exercised those muscles and not <laughs> taking care of the tenderness, which is the yeah. whole title of the yeah. book. Yeah. I've gotten yeah. really sharp. I've got, yes. I talk about like, I am a weapon of self-defense that I've yeah. been made this way. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I do have tender that I need to tend to. And so finding finding the tender in all the layers of anger that I've now over <laughs> exerted has been another journey that I'm on. Hi, my name is Prisca Lorcas Mojica Rodriguez. Um, my book for brown girls with sharp edges and tender hearts, A Love Letter to Women of Color, is available wherever books are sold. Um, but definitely go support your local Black, Indigenous, and person of color bookstore or bookstore owners and get yours today, please.
0: You know, when you tell your story, it reminds me of the Phoenix when you talked about crushing things and, you know, remaking, etc. It just feels like you have to it reminds me of Jane, uh, one the title of one of James Baldwin's book, well, "The Fire." Next time, it's almost you have to go, and even biblically, it talks about going through this fire. So sometimes you, but in the phoenix, out of this fire arises this new person, new hope, new perspective that could not have existed without going through the fire. Uh, I'm I'm so inspired by that, and I'm eager to read your book. Uh, You dared to jump in the fire. (laughs) Did you know that you would come out like fine gold or like, you know, this person with insights and understandings and so much to give? Was it a leap of faith or was it just a leap because you wanted out? (laughs) I wanted out so
3: bad I mm-hmm. wanted my life to belong mm-hmm. to me more than anything and I I often thought if I don't make it out of this because uh-huh. it did it did feel dangerous uh-huh. often uh-huh. to be a woman and to do the things that I was doing and yeah. to be a single woman and do the things that mm-hmm. I and say the things that I was doing mm-hmm. as loudly as I was saying it mm-hmm. I didn't think I would make it out many times yeah. Yeah. many many yeah. times and yeah. but I thought if it means never living that other life, that was the only option yes. I was given, yes. then I'd, I'd rather risk everything. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that's why it's so easy, I think, for me to continue to be disruptive because I, I like, tasted <laughs> that other life. I, like, I knew uh-huh. everything about that other life. Uh-huh. I, I understood where that other life would uh-huh. take me and I could have easily uh-huh. gone on the idle pilot. And I think so many of
0: us do. Can you articulate and because I don't want to push you into a space, but can you articulate or do you have any words or terms that kind of describe the space that you created from having gone through the fire and deciding for yourself, what part of the old world you want to keep, if any, what part of this new world you created out anger that you wanted to keep or dismiss. So. Is, are there ways, and I'm sure in your book, you can articulate what that means now and words you can share with us?
3: I think for me, it has been community, learning a new sense of community. And that's what I conclude with in the book. I think that there's, I, not only is my particular family unit very focused on only family first, family only, <laughs> nothing else matters. But women, family first, family only, nothing Matt, mm-hmm. your kids mm-hmm. are your treasure <laughs> uh, and they are the fruits of your labor. Um, so for me to because I'm also, I, I experience a lot of infertility. So for me, mm-hmm. understanding that I can't make family in the traditional ways that I've been taught mm-hmm. has forced me to reimagine what does it mean to create community what does it mean to be intentional about who you're surrounding yourself with Mm -hmm. and uh yeah it's been it's been shying away from this individual individualism model that I was Mm -hmm. Mm force-fed and told you know if you if you put your head down and you work hard you're going
0: to be amazing
3: That what that didn't work I tried it I tried Mm -hmm. it for so long
0: (laughs) and it's not worth Mm -hmm. it yeah
3: Yeah. and it's so lonely and and then what do you have to show for it Mm -hmm. (laughs) so uh It was those people, when I was going through all those journeys and the self-discovery, I don't think if I I hadn't started to make those really significant friendships in my program, Mm -hmm. I don't know if actually I would have made it because uh, they were the ones who were like, hey, uh, I know that you didn't used to drink and now you're experimenting Mm -hmm. with drinking, but maybe you shouldn't go to class drunk <laughs> or uh, oh you haven't eaten for three days we're, we're taking you to go eat breakfast mm-hmm. it was the people who were like you are barreling through this with everything yeah. you've got and you don't have everything you need within you like sometimes you are given more than you can carry mm-hmm. and you need other people to carry that with you oh
2: that's mm-hmm. how crazy that's so lovely <laughs> you know when you think about religion, right? Like the the fact that you were raised in like this Christian household, but it was like outside of that, that you experienced like real community and care and what it looked like to have people actually see you and fulfill like real needs that you had because they actually saw you, right? It's just like tailored to you. And I, I think about like, you know, a lot of times people will say, oh, well, you know, I'm cool with like the teachings of the Bible, but I just don't like Christians. And I always get it. Like I, I identify as a Christian, but I also really get it. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of yeah. ways in which people have shown up in a way that is just toxic and and really, really problematic, including missions um, that, you know, I think have given people a very poor representation of, you know, my faith um, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was this, and it kind of goes back to you saying, it kind of ties in with what I just said, and also goes back to, like, you talking about the fickleness, because I could hang out there all day, um, <laughs> this was really, really, really frustrated, um, with some of the people that I felt like I had given a lot of time to, um, but a lot of times what I also find in like these spaces, um, so you say Vanderbilt is like super considered progressive, right? Um, but whether you take a progressive space or you take a conservative space, a lot of times just like the power of whiteness and white supremacy like overshadows like everything, right? It impacts everything. And a lot of times people aren't connecting that to policy. So whether that's like internal policy of a university not showing up or trying to silence someone who had a Me Too experience, or whether that's actually like the way that people vote and the policies that they uphold, people n- seem to like not make that connection. Um, and it's like, okay, so you're progressive like Austin, <laughs> which is like this this fake progressiveness, um, but you're not actually considering the ways that you are upholding white supremacy and inequities, and you're not actively trying to deconstruct those. Um, and I don't know, I just want to have a conversation with you about that or get your thoughts.
3: Yeah, I don't think, um, and I think, I think it, it might be, it maybe has a lot to do with people who aren't accustomed to, because there are, I feel like there are bubbles. We, mm-hmm. especially if you stay in the same town that your parents were you they raised you in you stay in bubbles Um, because it takes it's a lot of privilege to leave to college it's a lot of privilege Mm -hmm. to move when it's not related to a job Mm -hmm. so I think people just like get get closed off in their bubbles and I always have to I'm always like I feel like I always have to remind people, no, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I look like I look. Like, I don't think you understand what that means. Like, <laughs> right. even, I went antiquing yesterday, and even, and I I went because I, I'm just, like, this, exploring this white woman hobby because I think it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, like, it, it's so interesting the things that they hoard to themselves. So I just like I'm I'm exploring antiquing as a concept. And mm-hmm. uh I went like at peak, you know, nobody's there but uh white women over 60. And I I had gone because I it's a thing that I'm enjoying. And then as I'm paying, I I, I start to like manage all their gaze. And like how they're reacting to me or asking me when I never get asked for ID for my credit card, I'm asking me for my ID because I'm paying a little more. And oh, is it like somebody asked me if my I have a little bag, a little Burberry bag, and Mm -hmm. she was like, Is that real? Like just little comments Mm -hmm. (laughs) where you're just like, I didn't I didn't come out for this. Mm -hmm. But I I for I forget because I've been in quarantine, (laughs) how much the white gaze is like. It doesn't matter what your intention Political. is, mm-hmm. what you're doing. Yeah, it doesn't matter anything. It is, it is. You have to manage it and you have to become hyper aware of the ways that they're perceiving. Oh, yes. Because mm-hmm. otherwise you're in danger.
2: That's
3: and right. that affects policy. Of course it affects policy. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, it's if, like baked if you in.
0: Even,
3: yeah, if you can't even understand the, the minutia of how white people control everything in yeah. including the ways that we show up in spaces mm-hmm.
1: then you can't even imagine how Literally it impacts you know, I mean it, just to think about that we're talking about an everyday experience of shopping right we're not even talking about right um, what would seem like things with such uh, uh, high expectations, right? We're not talking about, are you voting on immigration policy? Are you voting on housing policy? We're talking about the power of systems, right, that inform our cultural dynamics, impacting how you experience traversing through an antique store. And subconsciously, the pressure and responsibility of how you interact or respond to those women could impact how they vote for these other major things, mm-hmm. yeah. and so it creates this dynamic where you're never at rest, right? Mm-hmm. You're always having to be hyper vigilant about your body in spaces, mm-hmm. and it is a a responsibility and a burden that is not shared. You know, we're we're recording this episode in the midst of Women's History Month, and we, you know, at Rose Rebellion have been facilitating a lot of conversations about we can't have this conversation of gender equity, gender parity without understanding the cost or the nuances of what it's like to navigate this world, not just as a woman, but a woman of color. Right. And I, I wonder, you know, as you talk about that dynamic, you know, Megan, you know, uh, inviting us to connect that to like impact of like policies impact of like how we build spaces, right? How Vanderbilt, you know, mm-hmm. c- becomes a space of of learning and experience for students. But I also think about that in perhaps your the impetus for building Latina rebels and what your vision is for moving forward because it served as this incubation for your anger, for your disruption, for your place of rest where you could come and see women that look like you and that have language like you, and wasn't informed by the white gaze, But how do you see that space operating in the future? Is it still a place of like undeniable, uh, sort of an opportunity to be un- unapologetically you? Or do you see it as a space of resistance? Do you see it as a place of equipping women to go out and resist? What is kind of your, your future vision for it?
3: Uh, well, I'm tired of being mind. Um, for, like, a sample of how to get millennial Latinx money. Because that has happened. Like, when I started at LR in 2013, there weren't other pages like this. Nobody was thinking of Instagram as a place where you could have a voice it was very much still personal <laughs> accounts personal I mean I had made my first I think it was 2012 when I first made my IG so it was like a relatively new place mm-hmm. and um, because of how it has been received the amount of Latinx media that's risen <laughs> owned by white people um, that mines a lot of our content has been heartbreaking and so I think as I move forward I I have dreamt of this I've dreamt of this extensively and in my ideal world we continue to operate outside of um you know capitalism outside of the ways that we are told media should uh, operate so uh I would want on the website so I already bought the dot-com and I would um rent content like pay pay a fee to creators who are already making really cool stuff instead of like a buzzfeed that they hire you then you make a show and they put money into it but then you leave and they own everything and you can't Mm -hmm. do anything with it i want creators are out there already doing really cool Mm -hmm. stuff so what would it mean to financially support them pay them a fee to run their stuff on a on a place so videos um a lot of videos, I think, but also like just articles. People can keep the rights to all the written pieces. Just giving people autonomy, I think, is the way that I disrupt capitalism and giving people the the rights to their art, I think is something we don't see at all and continue to disrupt in the same ways, because I I I'm I'm constantly my ear is on the ground constantly paying attention to what's coming out new what are people saying differently Mm -hmm. what do I not know anything about what do I need to learn more about so staying on that same vein but just creating a different way to do media that doesn't feel draining but more Mm life-giving to the people who are making cool stuff like the fact that the highest paid TikTok creators are all white women or white people is atrocious Mm -hmm. like why don't we just get create our own networks, our own places, yeah. pay our own people and like fuck them. They're not they're not they're not opening a door for us. They're not leaving it even ajar. Yeah. So we yeah. need to make our own stuff and we need to yeah. do reimagine ways that that looks like and how it could feel everything. Yeah.
0: You know, when I'm having this conversation with you, I realize what a debt of gratitude I have to my husband. Uh because um I think he was. I think anger is good. I think he was anger with the where the world was, but he found places and spaces to resist and create new spaces for people. So, for instance, when you talk about Instagram and who you want, you you know, you don't want to give money to people already making money and will make more from you. Uh, You know, my my uh, black theology is very powerful, it is so powerful, and I'm so glad that my husband introduced me to it so that I could keep my faith, but I could resist with that faith And part, in fact, part of my faith was resistance. Um, for the poor, resistance for more love in the world, resistance for more compassion, resistance to say to people, this space is not yours. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it, it's so much of uh, the so we we lost so much with conquering, so to speak, the Native Americans who saw the world and land as belonging not to an individual, uh, but but so much of. Western civilization is built on what Rousseau, no pun intended, when he fenced in the first little plot of land and said, this is mine. And so anger, you have to have a level of anger, but directed anger. I think that's the difference to say, heck no, uh, this is not your space exclusively. So my husband just, we learned that was part of our, resistance even to a church who thought he was going too far. I mean, he dared to do things with anger, um, starting a alcohol and cocaine anonymous in our living room. Oh, the church was livid about that. Um, We brought homeless people. I'm still living. God, uh, who were right next to us. So I felt that our faith was authentic because we were hearing and in conversation with people who were experiencing the roughness of life and that our faith had to extend to their humanity, not just to the safe spaces that we create inside our churches Um, and not just giving to the poor, but bringing them into our lives. Our kids joke sometime when our doorbell rang and someone said, well, who is it? and they say, oh, it's probably a homeless person. You know, we're listed in the directory. But, and so we all left, but it wasn't that we were doing them a favor. We were communing with them, eating with them, understanding their plight. So I think that's some of the ways we can continue to exhibit, ang- I'm angry as an educator, I'm angry. I'm angry at the damage that has been done to our children from generation to... In fact, I was almost late getting on this, writing a piece. I'm angry that systems have done this to generations and generations of children who have to struggle to figure out who they are because they're so demeaned in spaces called school. So in this conversation, this word spaces just keeps coming out. Who do we share our spaces with? How intentional are we in disrupting spaces that people in an antique shop think belong to them only? Because that's the way they vote when they vote to exclude voting rights to people. Um, So I think our lives are just loving anger, (laughs) resistance.
1: Mm. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And um I have to say, I was just when I first came in contact with your work, um the title of your book is just so good. It's so good. It's so beautiful. And it captures, I think, what G Mom just said, right? Which is this duality, right? That for brown girls with sharp edges and tender hearts, right? Yes. And those sharp edges have been created out of the oppressive nature of this world. And those sharp edges have been created to be defense mechanisms. And they've also been, as you said, used to be a tool of disruption, but tender hearts in the sense that we have empathy, that our lived experience still anchors who we wanna be, that we still wanna build community. And you know, relating this back to Mom and sort of how you began this conversation, telling us about your experience coming over to the US and being in school and I find it so ironic and so beautifully poetic that as a second grader who couldn't read who didn't know her ABCs you become (laughs) an incredible author and a storyteller like that is that's the genius right of of the world of God and just like both hilarious and I think beautifully poetic and I wonder if you could kind of close us and sharing Um, the ways in which you continue to see storytelling as such a powerful tool um, for creating spaces, as Jimon said, spaces of affirmation, spaces of autonomy, um, and and what you would invite our listeners to to know about um, creating space, particularly for women of color to tell their own stories. Uh,
3: Storytelling, I mean, it's really natural, I think, for communities of color. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I grew yes. up knowing, you know, all the ghost encounters of everyone in my family in detail. <laughs> I grew up knowing all my aunts and my mom how they met their husbands, mm-hmm. their versions and their mm-hmm. husbands' versions. <laughs> And they were very rarely the same. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. In the church, I grew up in a very charismatic church where storytelling is how sermons happen. Yes. It, yeah. it, it, didn't ha- yes. it, it was a bad sermon if it wasn't in the storytelling method. Yes. <laughs> so yes. I grew up with storytelling, but I didn't find the value on it until, I was attempting, because I was learning a lot, and a lot of stuff that I hadn't grown up knowing, mm-hmm. and so I, in my attempts to teach, I did what academics do often, which is um, talk down in in very... I know everything, you know, nothing ways. Mm-hmm. And it was my mom who was like, no, 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 no. It's always, it's always
2: our life. mom. Yes. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but, but it was very necessary because you don't even realize how combative Academia makes you.
0: Yes. <laughs> until yes. you
3: go home and your family's like, Why do you say things like that? <laughs> Why are mm-hmm, you talking mm-hmm. to me with that mm-hmm. disrespect? <laughs> and I found that talking to her, you know, with all my citations and all my statistics, wasn't <laughs> cutting it because that's not how we talk to each other. <laughs> so I started to just say stories. I was like, yes. you know what? I've lived a life of secrecy for my mom. <laughs> and if I'm going to be honest and be the person that I want to become, she's going to have to get to know who I am. Yes. And so I started showing her scars that I had that I had uh-huh. never shared
0: uh-huh. and
3: just being like, you know how I say like men are trash. Let me tell you a few stories I never shared.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: she, she softened up a lot. She uh-huh. understood what I was saying in a way that where I wasn't talking down to her Uh, and it it felt like that was the bridge I should have been taught and encouraged to be building but I wasn't and that was the magic I was like oh it's it's storytelling this is how you do this work this is the only way that is humanizing to do this work well
0: I just, oh, how I affirm that statement. So I'm involved with building community schools. I don't know if you know of that concept, but it's where the, the school isn't everything for God's sake. There's a community and you're planted down in it. And the more you reach out and hear the stories of the people who've held this community together, the, the women who have sacrificed to see that their children can have life. You, it, schools will not be complete until schools are open to hearing those stories, learning from those stories, and thereby learning how to educate people's children. You just gave me a big mouthful right there. <laughs>
3: yes, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it is the only way. And I think it's the only reason I've been as successful as I have, and that I got a book deal was because I said like, no, you don't get to tell me how I'm going to tell this.
2: and how I'm going to spread it. Yeah, I think about the oral tradition of communities of color. And like, it's really been out of necessity, right? Mm -hmm. But then it's like so beautiful. It's almost like lyrical. It's like our own language. Um, But, you know, out of necessity, because think about like in slavery, we couldn't like to read and to write was to be put to death, you know? So you learn to pass, the word down. Um, uh, Clint Smith has a book out right now that is on my list to read It's how the word is passed. And it's about that kind of oral tradition mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. communities of color. And so, um, yeah, I think storytelling has been our superpower for the longest. It's how we have freed ourselves over and over again. It's how we have disrupted um, so many, so many um, systems and continue to disrupt them. Um, so, I just want to thank you. This has been like a great conversation with someone who I really just have so many things that I relate to that I get. Um, I love that you have, you created a space for your kind of anger and righteous indignation and rage, but also your tenderness. We we talk about like both and all the time with like Rosa Rebellion that we are worthy of experiencing the full range of emotion, just like anybody else, and to not let um, you know anyone police that. So, um, I'm really inspired by your journey. There's so many different like parts of it, you know, like. But what I got from listening to you was that you've always had, like, this self-awareness and this intentionality around, like, how you want to live your life and how, honestly, you've gotten to a place of freeing yourself. Um, and so that's just really, really um, inspiring. So I don't know if there's anything you want to, to leave us with. Um, but, yeah, I just give the floor back to you.
3: I want to name something obvious because I think uh, non-Black people of color forget that like it it is very different to be black versus a non black person of color. So I want to name that for your listeners who don't necessarily maybe aren't seeing my face. I I think that my ability to have been in certain places is a lot has to do a lot with the fact that I'm a non black person of color too. I think that that has opened opportunities for better for worse for me, and I think that I I just. I refuse <laughs> I refuse to not acknowledge that in the room when you say when you're saying things about like slavery and stuff I'm like yeah that that wasn't my experience so the that's important to also name so yeah that
0: yet there are all mm-hmm. kinds of slavery yeah and uh and in many ways people who are not black have experienced lifetimes of slavery to ideals and notions about who they are.